All right, well this morning we'll be diving back into the Gospel according to Luke. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to chapter 2 of Luke at the end of the chapter, starting in verse 39. We'll be talking about a very, really cool story about the childhood of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to chapter 2 of Luke, starting in verse 39. Let's read together. You don't have to read out loud. You can just read along. Let's read together, starting in verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was twelve years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. And then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful of this story. We're so grateful that you saw fit in your infinite wisdom to include such a portion in the gospel according to Luke. That we get to peer in for just a moment what adolescence was like with Jesus and why it is included in here. That it may be a nourishment to our souls and our understanding of Christ and His obedience. So Lord, we ask this morning that you would bless our time in the Word and bless our hearts and guide our hearts and minds to understanding your Word and how we are also to be obedient. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, a very interesting story. Now, a couple of things about this story. This is about the only story that we know in all of the scriptures regarding kind of the adolescence or youthfulness of Jesus. Uh, We generally go from all the other gospel accounts. It goes right from his birth right into the ministry, right to John the Baptist. But it jumps ahead to his adulthood. And this is the only story that we have regarding his adolescence. And I find it absolutely imperative that we... Not just skip over this story whenever we're reading through it. Now, most of us, as we grew up, we probably heard this story, maybe been in Awana or Sunday school or children's church and heard this story and thought and was taught, hey, Jesus showcased how to be obedient to God and to parents, right? This is how you're to be obedient to both. And so we learn that. But there is so much more in this text that Luke included as a necessity and a nourishment to our souls as Christians, Outside of the simple fact 
that uh, Jesus was just simply obedient to both his parents and to God. And so we're going to dive into this. But before we dive in, just a few little points in this particular text that I want to draw our attention to. One is that Jesus became strong and filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was with him. So as we exited out of the birth narratives and out of the witness uh, portions with Simeon and the, uh, the prophetess, after we exit out of that, we get this last portion. Now, after all the stuff had been fulfilled by the law of the Lord, he grew in wisdom, became strong and favor. So we understand that from the time he was circumcised in name, that he began to grow in wisdom, become stronger, and favor of God was with him. So he didn't just pop out like a, a, you know, a toddler and like walk on the bath water and things like that. So he, be, he lived his life as a child. He grew in life as a child. He grew up and became strong and grew in wisdom. Next is the faithful obedience of Jesus' parents. I wanted us to see this, that it was very clear that the parents remained faithful even throughout the years of Jesus' youth. That every single year they would go to the Passover feast in Jerusalem. Could you imagine being the parents of the Son of God? How faithful that they and obedient they needed to be. Like every decision they made be like, oh man, is this what God wants? Are we messing things up? Like you accidentally dropped Jesus. Oh no, <laughs> they dropped their Savior of the world. You know... Or maybe getting upset with Jesus, you know, if he's just being a kid and you're like, Hey now, I told you. <laughs> Jesus never sinned, so who are we kidding? They didn't get upset with him. But the reality is, is could you imagine the weight that Mary and Joseph had realizing that the Son of God, they were held uh, stewardship to. That the Lord saw fit that they would uh, be responsible for raising this young Jesus. So they had faithful obedience. They would go to Jerusalem every year from Nazareth to participate in Passover. Now, just to give you some understanding, between Nazareth and Jerusalem is about 80 miles. It's about 80 miles. That's quite a journey on foot, and it would take quite a while. So they would go every single year, as was the custom. Second, is we are third. We want to see this interesting portion where Jesus is engaged as a 12-year-old asking questions and responding in interpretation with the teachers in the temple. There's a term for that that's called midrash. Midrash. So generally in Jewish custom even to this day they do this, they would go and read a parsha, which means portion of the scripture. The rabbi would interpret the scripture, give you a little something about how to live your life in accordance to the scripture. And then afterwards, the people, the rabbi would come down and the people would get an opportunity to ask questions, engaged in this back and forth with the rabbi. That's called midrash. And so we see Jesus at the age of 12 engaging with these rabbi in the temple at Jerusalem uh, after Passover. So that's going to be important. So why is that? And also, the expectation of Jesus with the parents to be with him. So the parents, as they left Jerusalem, they just kind of expected Jesus to be there. I mean, could you imagine going an entire day without seeing your child? And being like, wait a second, I thought he was with you. No, I thought he was with you. An entire day they went without knowing Jesus was there. They just assumed that he was with them. So they got distressed. They had the expectation that Jesus would just have been there. 
And so we're going to see why that expectation and what Jesus did in the midst of that is so important to understanding uh, how we are to observe the will of the Father. Next, the fear of their bad stewardship. The fear of their bad stewardship. Mary and Joseph became distressed because they thought they lost Jesus. (laughs) They thought they lost Him, so they had to go back and they looked everywhere for Him and then they respond with distress like, Why did you do this to us, Jesus? It has nothing to do with Jesus, but everything to do with the parents. They were distressed because they thought that they were being bad stewards with the most glorious, most precious, most treasured of all things, and that's Jesus Christ. But we're going to learn through this distress, through these anxieties that he had, um, how it is that we are being shown great mercy in the midst of our anxieties that the parents felt that they were being bad stewards. Jesus begins to astonish the teachers with his understanding and answers. This understanding and answers. Now, one something that's absolutely incredible is that Luke included that this portion where he was engaging in back and forth with the rabbi was right after Passover. Does anybody know what the theme of Passover is? It's the redemption of the people of God from death and slavery. They were astonished at his understanding and wisdom regarding the redemption of God's people. So in the Midrash, they would typically go back and forth in questions regarding the Parsha that they read. And so Jesus was able to respond back and forth with these teachers of the law regarding redemption, reconciliation, deliverance from bondage. I find that Luke included this because we're going to begin to understand, and so will Mary, what the real purpose of Jesus is for. There's the realization of Jesus' Father in heaven and His purpose. That Jesus, whenever He was found by His parents, said, Didn't you know that I must be in my Father's house? This back reminder to Mary that Jesus is not your child. That He has a purpose. That He was born, given to you as a steward. That God saw great mercy and grace upon you to allow Him to be born through you. And now... You have to understand that as this child is growing and it continues to grow and then get to the age of uh, uh, 30 to 33 years old, he has a defined purpose by which he is here, which is what? Redemption, reconciliation, deliverance of bondage of slavery for the people of God. So Mary and Joseph in that moment are being reminded of the true nature and the purpose of Jesus to which they are raising. And lastly, Jesus shows understanding of the parents' concerns and is obedient, both to the heavenly Father and to his earthly mother. In the midst of all this, Jesus could have been like, do you not know who I am? And just been like, be gone, Mary and Joseph. And just went on his way and become who he was destined purpose to become. He could have completely dismissed Mary and Joseph and just be like, do you, you guys know who you are? You're earthly parents. I'm about my father's business. But he didn't. In the midst of her distress regarding him, he did what? The text says he was submissive to them. Does that mean that Jesus chose to obey his earthly parents rather than God? No. He showcased the ability to both, which brings us to our main point for today. This is our main thing. If there's anything you take away from this morning's sermon, 
is this, that Jesus' obedience showcases his purpose in the will of the Father and the love of his people. It's both and, not either or. He showcases the ability to remain completely and faithfully obedient to the will of the Father, also while showcasing his love for his earthly mother in the midst of her distress. He is able to walk with her back to the caravan, because he's still going to fulfill his great purpose by which he was sent, to save sinners. But in the midst of that, he showcased his love towards his mother. And it says in the text, and we'll see this later, that she treasured up all these things in her heart. Because we saw both the realization that this is going to be the Lamb of God that is slain. The Passover Lamb. The deliverance of the people of God. But it also showcases that He cares and loves for His people. He understands their, their distresses and their anxieties. And out of His great mercy is able to relieve that. So it's both and. So this story about Jesus being 12 years old showcases to us three particular points that I want us to see. That Christ knows the growth and the wisdom of God. That He understands the process by which you and I engage in this wilderness and seeking to understand more of God. That we must grow in wisdom and understand who it is that we serve and where the redemption came from. He understands that growth and the wisdom. Number two, that Christ knows the centrality of the will of the Father. That Christ came to fulfill that will of the Father. That He is completely obedient to the will of the Father. That He comes as a servant to save sinners. And lastly, that Christ knows the anxiety of those He loves and cares for. That He understands what this life is like. And we're going to see that we have a great high priest to whom sympathizes with us because He's been through it. He's been through it as a child. He's been through it as an adult. He's seen all the shame and suffering that has come upon Him. So we have a great advocate in Christ to whom we ourselves can go. He is not detached from the human experience. He was right in the midst of it. So he knows. So let us showcase this morning that the obedience displayed by Jesus in the end of Luke 2 demonstrates the example of obedience we are to abide in and the care he has for those who love, love him. This brings us to number one. Christ knows. Christ knows the growth in wisdom, the growth in wisdom. Twice we saw this, both at the beginning of the portion and at the end of the portion, that Christ grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor of God. That as a child, He went through this process. Jesus, being the Son of God, grew in wisdom and favor. He became strong. It, became e it becomes easy to dismiss Jesus because of uh, His divine nature. We dismiss His human nature from time to time. That we see Him in such His reigning and sovereign King, the Lord over all things, that we completely overlook the reality that He had a human nature as well. That He went through this life. He knows what scraping the knee is like. He knows the anguishes that come upon the hearts of the people. He understands what it feels like, and we're going to see that here in a moment. He had to condemn sin in the flesh, therefore He endured all that humanity endured including the evil of school. Can I get an amen from the kiddos? Yes. And for anybody else who might be in college or cemetery, I mean seminary. He even endured school. Now this is something quite intriguing. 
Because back during in the first century, there was a process for Jewish boys to get into school. And do you know what time, you know what age they started school? At six years old. In the Talmud, the current Talmud, you can go and actually read this. It says at the six years old, we stuff them with Torah like an ox. That means they feed them nothing but the scriptures over and over again. From the age of six, anybody in here six years old? Nobody? How about between six and ten? You little ones in here. Oh, there's a few of you in here. I see you. You guys hiding. But between the ages of around six and ten years old... They would memorize the entirety of the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers. All five first books of the Bible memorized word for word perfect. You think Awana is hard? (laughs) These Jewish boys would be submitted to this school from 6 to 10 years old. And that's all they're taught. The only thing they're taught is Torah, 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 Torah. And they would have it memorized. Now, from about the age of between 10 and 12 and 10 and 13, depending on some schools, uh, the first school they went to, the one at age 6, is called Bet Sefer. Bet Sefer, which means house of the book. House of the book, which is where we get Torah from. It's, a, it's the book, the book of the law. Bet Sefer, and that's the school they would go to. Now, around six year, or 10 years old, they would graduate, I guess, up to the next school which is called Bet Talmud. Bet Talmud, which means house of learning or house of teaching. House of teaching. Now, between the ages of 10 and around 12, 13 years old, the only thing that they would learn at this time was the rest and memorize the rest of the Old Testament. (laughs) We're talking everything past the Torah they would memorize, word for word. So those moments whenever we're going through the Gospels and Jesus spits a verse to them, and then it says that the Pharisees got angry and wanted to kill him, it's because he was doing this back and forth stuff. They knew what he was saying. And we'll see this as we go through Luke. That he would quote a verse, and basically the next verse would be something like, the, and then the wicked priest you know, shall be cut off from the people. <laughs> and of course they wanted to kill him. They just didn't rise up and wanted to kill him for no reason. He was using Scripture in a very specific way. So all these boys would memorize all of this stuff. Now, during this time, they would also begin to start asking the rabbis questions. In their education format, it wasn't good enough just to simply memorize and spit back a response. They had to know everything that was around it. What's the theme? You know, what it was before it? What was after it? They had to understand it completely. So as they're between 10 and 12, 10 and 13 years old, they would start asking questions to the rabbi like, I understand this portion of text says this, but what does this portion mean here or this portion mean here in relation to all this? So they would start engaging with the rabbis back and forth, asking questions and responding. And the rabbis would be like, well, this is my interpretation of that move. That term where they respond back, to the kids, or whenever they teach from the synagogue, is called their yoke. <laughs> How intriguing. A yoke that you put on an ox. It's something you take upon yourself as an understanding of what work you should be doing in this life. So whenever a rabbi would say, hey, this is my interpretation, if you receive that, you're taking upon that particular rabbi's yoke. Now, from a past, around 12, 13, 14 years old, they would move on to a different school. And this is if you were like the best, right? We're talking Yale, Harvard. We're talking the best of the best. If you were creaming the crop of your understanding of the scriptures, you'd move on to Bet Midrash. 
Bet Midrash means house of interpretation or house of understanding. This is the point in time at that age whenever a young boy would go up to a rabbi and say something like, Hey, I understand your teaching. I enjoy it. I've taken your yoke upon myself. Let me be your disciple. And then the rabbi would respond to them if they wanted to. Lechachrai, come follow me. Now do you see why that phrase, come follow me, is so important to the disciples? We're talking that 13 years old, 14 years old, these rabbis would say, you're the best of the best, and I choose you to be my disciple. The young men, James, John, the disciples, when they were all out fishing, it's because they didn't make the cut. So they had to go learn their trade. So when you have Jesus come along and say, L'chakarai, the Messiah himself is looking at these disciples saying, I choose you to come follow me. I see it in you that you should take upon my yoke. And what does he say about his yoke? It is easy and light. So as we go through the time of of Luke, as we start seeing these things play out, may that be a reminder of your head, some of these phrases that Jesus says. Now, one thing I find absolutely imperative to understand as Jesus went through these schools, is he was around 12 years old. 12 years old. I want you to understand this. Jesus would not attach himself to any rabbi like other boys would at at that age. He would take upon the yoke of the Father himself. Most boys at the age of 12 would go to a specific rabbi and say, your teaching is the best, and I want to learn from you. Jesus, do you know what house he said he's in? The house of his father. And later on we hear him say, I'm about my father's business. So guess what he has chosen to take upon himself? The yoke of the entirety of the word of God. Rather than simply taking on a yoke of interpretation, he's taken the law upon himself, he's taken the shame and sin and everything that comes with it to Calvary for your stead. We've talked about that, so he fulfilled all righteousness for your stead. That's what he's taking on. That's why I love that in this portion here at the age of 12, he didn't stay in the house to the rabbis. He goes back with his parents. Because his purpose and the thing that he's taken on is much greater than just some simple rabbi. So if there's anybody out there, if you hear a YouTube channel or any podcast or something, that oh, Jesus learned under Gamaliel or Jesus learned under Hillel, that's bunk. We see this clearly in Luke that he, he jets out of there. He doesn't take upon the yoke of any rabbi. He takes upon the yoke of the Father. Now, now, what's all this mean? Okay, You're like, cool, Freddie, thanks for the history lesson. New Year's means resolutions. This is a lot of stuff that we're taking upon ourselves right now. Weight loss or time management or better this or better that. And many of you may desire to read through the Bible in a year. You start strong and you come to Leviticus and time just seems to be filled with busyness, huh? You're like, oh man, Genesis, the creation, so cool. Exodus, there's all these miracles and signs and wonders. And then you shall take the bull, and you should kill the bull and place the bull's blood on the corner. <laughs> so you may have these resolutions to want to read through the scriptures. And me telling you that six-year-olds six year are, are memorizing the Torah may seem a little daunting. But here's the reality of it. Some of you may be feeling that this is a lot. That the idea of reading and knowing much of the Bible can feel overwhelming. 
looking at this, if you're a new Christian, seems daunting. Like, how do I know where to go? And where should I start? And what should I read? Uh, what are the Psalms? And how am I supposed to interpret the Psalms? What does David mean when he says this? Or what does Jesus mean when he says that? And I don't even want to get near Revelation. Revelation, singular, not Revelations. I've said it from the pulpit before. Somebody corrected me. Freddie, it's a revelation. So we stay away from the, 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 the weird stuff that we don't understand. It seems daunting. And some of you may feel lost from time to time when engaging with the Word of God. This past Wednesday, we learned a statistic that stated that less than 10% of professing, professing Christians read their Bible every day. Less than 10%. And over 50% rarely read it once a week. I'm not saying this to condemn you. I'm saying this so that way you realize you're not alone. If you walk around feeling just completely overwhelmed and you're like, man, I'm not being a good steward with my time. I, I don't understand this word of God. Uh, uh, I, I, I'm just not keeping up. And all these people are posting quotes of scriptures and stuff and starting the reading plans. You're not alone. But there is a necessity in engaging in this life understand the word of God that it should be a nourishment to you that it reflects back to you the message or the way that to which we are supposed to be living this life because the way that we used to live this life is no longer the way we should be living this life because you've been redeemed bought with a price spilled by the blood of Jesus Christ redeemed back and now you desire to do good works so your life has to look different so how does that life look different? How are we supposed to know? I want you to listen to what Psalm 119 says. There's a portion in Psalm 119 that says this. It asks the question, How can a young man keep his way pure? How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. We are given from the outset, in the midst of one of the biggest chapters of all of the, the scriptures in Psalm 119 regarding the Word of God, the question is asked, how do you guard this, young man? How do you guard your heart? Through the Word of God. How do we guard it from those things of feeling inadequate? How do we guard ourselves from those moments whenever we know we should be living better? Or whenever we need to understand, I used to be this way, but I know I'm not supposed to be this way. What does God's word say? I find it intriguing that, that this particular portion also relates in regards to Jesus' life. He was 12 years old. Anybody have any 12-year-olds or raised 12-year-olds? Things start changing. Attitudes start changing. So how does a young man guard his heart? How does a young man keep his walk pure? By guarding it according to the word. The Word of God is more than just black and white words on a page or red if you have a red letter Bible. The Word of God is more than just a historical book. Jesus grew in the wisdom of the Word of God. He is the Word, but in His human nature, He still grew in it. So what makes you think you don't have to? How do you guard your heart? How do you keep your heart pure? How do you continue to walk the life to which you have been called? By it being guarded by the Word of God that it reflect to you how you are to live. And we are given this charge. Paul writes to Timothy, a young pastor, regarding the Word of God in 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy, chapter 3, starting in verse 1. 
But understand this. This is Paul writing to Timothy. But understand this. That in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Oh, I love that that's thrown in there. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good. Hey, can anybody say that that sounds very similar to what we're dealing with right now? The world seems to be on a tipping point. Society seems like it's about to crack. Where people are tiptoeing on these things. That they're giving up on the good. They're like, you know what, I'm all about me and mine. I'm going to protect me and mine. They become rude to each other. They become hateful online. They don't care what God thinks. I'm going to live my own life. I only get one. YOLO. So I'm going to live it my way. Unholy. Slanderous. No longer caring about anybody. Let's continue on in the text. Treacherous. Reckless. Swollen with conceit. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Man, those keyboard warriors, that last portion, they have the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. People who walk and live this life as if that they are holier than you because of the decisions they have made. That you look upon their life and you're like, man, they got everything together. You know, they eat vegan food and they wear recycled stuff. They care about the planet. Man, they seem to be on it. They think it looks godly, but they're not. They deny the very power by which change actually just come. And what does Paul tell Timothy? Avoid such people. Avoid such people. Okay, Paul, thank you for the list of people to avoid. How are we supposed to be? Let's continue on in verse 10. Continuing on in verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Guess what, Christian? You're not going to be liked at the company Christmas party because you don't fall in line with their woke ideologies. You're not going to be liked whenever you go to the baseball game or soccer game because you're simply a Christian nowadays. That used to be a foreign thing. Everybody used to go to church. It used to be just extremely commonplace to be Christian, at least to live by Christian values. Nowadays, you're looked at as a, a pest. A roadblock to progress. It seems kind of like we're in those times now, isn't it? While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Oh, there it is. 
which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Here's a fancy term that you guys can use. Theonustros. Theonustros means God breathed. And profitable for teaching. If you don't understand something, the Scriptures are where you're to go to understand it. For reproof. That's living your life in such a way that you think you're doing right only to find out later that you're not. So reproof corrects that. Correction. Sometimes we just need to be told that we're sinning. That we need to repent from it. And training in righteousness. Do you want to understand how to live a godly life? Do you want to understand the call of God on your life to walk in alignment to the, the will of the Lord? It's through the, will, uh, the word of God. Verse 17. That the man of God may be complete. That means whole, built up, complete. Not broken. Not completely dismembered, but complete and whole. Equipped for every good work. We have been called, and I say it all the time, Ephesians 2.10, that you've been saved in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared for you to do ahead of time. That all of us desire to do good works. That out of the overflow of our salvation, we go and do the will of the Father to do good works. Which brings us to part number two. Number two. Oh, I'm sorry. Second Peter. Second Peter. Let's listen to Peter in regards to what this means, how we are to live godly lives. This dichotomy that we saw in Timothy, the dichotomy that we saw. Second Peter, chapter 1, starting in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Whenever you go and receiving Christ Jesus by faith, you desire to do good. So you start pushing that point of virtue. That you become virtuous. And with virtue, knowledge. Once you start moving from desiring to do good, now you start understanding. You start reading the scriptures and understand who Christ is and what He has called us to do and how we live godly lives. With knowledge, self-control. Once you know how to live and what God desires for you in the scriptures, you can live self-control. Because you know, I, I know not to do that. I know not to do that. I stay away from this. You start putting things out of your home and out of your way so that way you're not tripped up. That's self-control. And self-control with steadfastness. Once you remove those boundaries, you can begin walking and staying faithful to it. Doesn't mean you won't trip. Doesn't mean you won't fail sometimes. But steadfastness, steadfastness, even when you trip, is to continue forward. Continue forward. And with steadfastness, with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being what? Ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. If you are not abounding in these particular areas, Peter is saying that you've completely lost the, the reality of the gospel in your life. You've completely lost it. you become blind to it. 
Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is a necessity to grow in wisdom. How do you keep your walk pure? By guarding it with the word. By guarding it with the word. Number two. Christ knows the centrality of the will of the Father. The centrality of the will of the Father. We see this, that Jesus does not go back immediately with the caravan. That Jesus remains in the house with the Midrash, remember? Back and forth with the rabbis, and they were astonished and amazed at His understanding and wisdom. We see this. How fitting that the topic of discussion at the temple would be right after Passover. That the Parsha... Hebrew word for portion, that the Parsha that is read would be regarding the delivery of God's people from slavery to the wilderness to worship God while being carried to the promised land. This is the, this is the point of Jesus' discussion with the rabbis. Whenever they go back to Passover, the portion of the Parsha is all about redemption, all about reconciliation and deliverance. That's what they do. Has anybody ever been to a Seder, a Passover Seder? They're awesome. They're a lot of fun. I really enjoy them. And you can begin to see how, how incredible it is, this long-awaited to the Messiah. You know, you get to recount the delivery of the people of God from slavery. And you get to rejoice because you see the other side of that. It's a beautiful thing. But how fitting is it that this is the portion we see in Luke? That Luke draws our attention to this particular portion here. That Jesus is engaging back and forth with the rabbis regarding the deliverance of God's people from bondage. And this is where the rabbis were astonished at his understanding. Because Christ came with a purpose, did he not? To save sinners. To deliver his people from bondage. To deliver them from death. That he would become the Passover lamb himself. Of course he's going to know these portions of Torah, and astonish the rabbi. Because he is him. He is that one. How fitting that, that this portion would be the one that would be reading, that Jesus would engage with. Jesus abiding in the Father's house demonstrates that his purpose is found in the will of the Father. And the Father's will is that Jesus is to be the Passover lamb by which the people of God would be delivered from death. Be delivered from death. Now, I want us to go to Psalm 136. Psalm 136. If you have your Bible, let's turn to Psalm 136. Now, this is what is called the Hallel. At the end of a Passover dinner, this text is read for everybody in anticipation of the Messiah. I want us to read through it together to realize that Christ is this very fulfillment of this Hallel. Now check this out. Uh, you may notice in your Bible that after every beginning line, the, t- the text, His steadfast love endures forever, is every line. So what we'll read is the first portion. Just know that the term or the phrase, His steadfast love endures forever, showcases the covenant faithfulness of God to His promises. So let's read. Let's read those portions together. Start, starting in verse 1. Psalm 136, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. 
To him who alone does great wonders, to him who by understanding made the heavens, to him who spread out the earth, to him who made the great lights, the sun to rule over the day, the moon and stars to rule over the night, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, to him who divided the Red Sea in two and made Israel pass through the midst of it, but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, to him who led his people through the wilderness, to him who struck down great kings and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel, his servant. It is he who remembered us in our low estate and rescued us from our foes. He who gives food to all flesh, give thanks to the God of heaven. Can you imagine having them just read that? And Jesus is sitting there discussing redemption with them. Oh, that their eyes may be open to this realization. That the very song that they sing in anticipation for redemption is sitting there with them at the age of 12. Jesus had to be in the Father's house because that is the destination to which He will carry the people of God. He had to be in that house because that's the destination we are going. And we see this in John 14. John 14, starting in verse 1. This is Jesus speaking right before He's betrayed. He's talking to His disciples. Listen to what Jesus says here. Let not your hearts be troubled. troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, what have I told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, to where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, now let's just make a quick side note. I hate the fact that they call Thomas the doubter. I would much rather us change it to Thomas the confirmer. He wasn't about to just be swayed by any, anybody. He wanted to be sure of everything he wanted to do. If the Lord Jesus came through, all the other disciples were like, Oh yeah, this is awesome. Thomas was like, wait, wait, wait. I need proof. May we be like Thomas, that we understand and confirm that which we believe before we just dive in with zeal. So Thomas asked this question, and I love that he asked it. Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? So he's saying, wait a second, Jesus, you're saying we're going to be going with you to this place. We don't know the way. Listen to what Jesus says next. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Don't tell me Jesus didn't come. And say, oh, he wasn't, he didn't say that he was Messiah. He never said that he was God. Oh, yeah, he did. Verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Philip's zeal. Jesus answers, Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 
How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, truly, truly means listen up. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Now, a lot of people take that and use it as some supernatural thing of grandiosity. Somehow that they're going to be bigger than Jesus. No, listen to his words. Whose works are he ta- is he talking about be- to begin with? He says the works that he does is works from who? The Father, and he does them. Therefore, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. So you want to be in alignment with the Father? Be in Christ Jesus. Do you want to know the will of the Father? Be in Christ Jesus. And greater works than these will He do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in My name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask Me anything in My name, I will do it. Now, Jesus doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just stop there. Be like, hey... Do some good stuff. If you abide in me, do some good stuff. He goes, no, no. It goes even further than that. I'm going to give you a way by which you are able to do these things. Listen, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Can somebody tell me what he's talking about? The Spirit. He's not only giving you the ability to do good works, but He's giving you the power to do it too. He hasn't given you just the instructions like that happened to Israel. He's given you the, both the will and the power to do it. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You will also live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not a scared, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Check this out. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my commandments. We will love him, and we will make our home with him. So many of you ask then, what is the will of God then, Freddie? I thought this was all about the will of the Father. How do I know that I'm going to do the will of God? Does He abide in you? Have they made their home in you? Have you been given the helper? Because let's find out what it means. What is it that Jesus means? Everyone wants to know the will of God for their lives. Many will spend years seeking to know if they should move to such and such a place to do such and such a thing. So what, it is, what is the will of God? Jesus says it this way. 
to seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. Matthew six twenty five through 34 Therefore I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, do not be anxious about your life. Do you hear that? I know there's a lot of New Year's resolutions out there. A lot of you may be spending a lot of time saying, Lord, what should I do? And you're waiting. <laughs> you're sitting there waiting. I don't know what to do, Lord. Should I move here? Should I go here? Can I get this job? Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat and what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. Neither, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory is not arrayed like the one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Do you want to live the will of the Father? Do you want to live in alignment to the will of God? Seek the kingdom. Because while seeking the kingdom, you'll be guided exactly where you're supposed to be. It's not sitting there wandering with your hands, sitting on your hands asking the Lord, oh, what should I do? It's you going and doing. It's you going and being about the kingdom business. It's you being going and being about the Father's business. And He'll make sure you get to where you're supposed to go. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So what are we supposed to do with our bodies then, Freddie? If I'm not supposed to worry about it, if I'm not supposed to be like trying to figure out, rolling of the dice, what my life is supposed to be like. What are we supposed to do with our bodies then? Pastor Blake preached about it wonderfully last week. If you were here, it was a big blessing. If you weren't here, I highly recommend going back and listening to it. Romans 12, 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Give of yourself to God. Submit to Him to do His good works wherever you're at. You don't have to be in another country to be faithful. You don't have to have a certain title or position to be in the will of God. You could be serving in the will of God at your home with your children. You could be serving in the will of God down in the nursery or playing an instrument. The Lord may teach you how to play something just so that way you go somewhere else to do that very thing for someone else. So don't dismiss the little things. You want to be in the will of the Father? Be about His business. Just do the work. Submit yourselves as a living sacrifice. Verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. Through testing you're going to figure this out. What is good and acceptable and perfect. 
I love 1 John 4. 1 John 4 gets right to the matter. 1 John 4 gets right to the matter regarding the will of God. So let's dive into it. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Oh, we see that every day. Verse 4, little children, you are from God and you have overcome them. Do you know what he called you? Little children. You are children of God. You are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore they speak from the world. And the world listens to them. Do you understand? Do you want to be a part of the will of God? You're going to be hated. Even in the midst of love, you will be hated. Check this out. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. And whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know that the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Is love abounding in your life? Love for your brother and sister in Christ? Love for those around you at your workplace? I didn't say tolerance. Notice I didn't say tolerance. I said love for them. Understanding where they're at in their life. The fact that they don't have Christ. That they're not in the same manner as you. To have grace and mercy and kindness with them. That they may see the good works by which you are displaying to them. And glorify the Father in heaven. You want to be in the will of God? Love is the key. Verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation of our sins. That's a big word meaning payment. He satisfied. Verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God but if we love one another, God abides in us and His love for, uh, and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. We saw that earlier, John 14. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. A beautiful picture. If you want to understand if you're living in right, living with God and his will, does, is love abounding in your life? Is love abounding in your life? Number three, Christ knows. Number three, Christ knows. The anxieties of those he loves and cares. Quickly. Mary and Joseph did not know what happened. Or nor did they know what it meant when Jesus, at the time, when Jesus said to them, He must be in His Father's house. But in the submission of Jesus to follow Mary in her distress brought treasure to her heart. That she knew from the very beginning the purpose by which Jesus was born unto her. 
She may love him. She may adore him, hold him, give him kiss and hugs and just adore this child. But this child is not hers. This child is not hers. And she was reminded of that in that very moment. In that moment, whenever he asked her the question, do you not know, where else would I be but in my father's house? She was reminded of his purpose. But what did Jesus do in that moment? Did he say, see ya, peace, I'm going to go do my thing now? No, he went with her. And the text is very, very beautiful. And it says that he was submissive to them. And as he grew, he was submissive to them. And Mary says that she put these things up as treasures in her heart. Do you want to know why? Because though he be God, he cared for her in the midst of those anguishes and distresses. And we see this over and over again. Jesus came to save sinners, as it is the will of the Father. But since, he, but since it was not His time to be revealed yet, His obedience to His mother displayed His care for Mary, even though she knew of His greater purpose. Everybody knows the shortest scripture in all of the Bible. It's two words. Jesus wept. Do you want to know why He wept? Was it because Lazarus had died? No. He knew what he was doing. It was because of that situation how it affected all the others around him. That the Son was going to be glorified in the midst of bringing Lazarus from the dead. The Lord knew He was going to bring Lazarus from the dead. But yet He wept. Why? Because it says in the text that He saw how it affected everybody else that they were in great distress and that they were weeping. So Jesus wept with them. We're talking about the Son of God here, who knew He was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, and yet weeps because of the effect it had on the people that He loved. How great a Savior that we have, He sympathizes with us, who weeps when we weep, who rejoices when we rejoice. Not because of some grandiose thing, it's because He cares for you. He understands your anxieties and is willing to meet you where you are. Just as He did with those He loves. God knows you and knows your sorrows, anxieties, and despairs. We see this in Philippians 4. I had a wonderful conversation with a brother here recently regarding this very thing. Listen to what Paul writes in Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness Be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm sure many of you have heard that text, and somebody may have said it to you whenever you're anxious. You may have been in the pit of despair. You may have just lost your job. You may have had a family member or a friend pass away and someone just walks up to you and be like, don't be anxious, the Bible says so. How careless. Do you want to know why Paul wrote what he wrote here? Two chapters before, he writes about his own anxiety. Whoa. He had sent for Epaphroditus and Timothy to come minister to him. Epaphroditus leaves the church at Philippi, comes up to minister to Paul. Epaphroditus gets sick and almost dies. 
He almost dies. Paul, being anxious about what would happen, he was anxious about Epaphroditus being sick. He was anxious about what would happen at the church at Philippi. Oh, this is all my fault. I asked them to come to bring me my stuff, and now they're going to be without a pastor. And the text says that the Lord was rich in mercy, not just to Epaphroditus in delivering, but also to Paul, that he may be less anxious. The point is, is not to just simply abstain from anxiousness. The point is to whom you go to in the midst of your anxiety, in the midst of your distresses, in the midst of your place, that you even realize that you may have made a decision that may affect other people. You're like, oh no, I've ruined their life and this life. I can't believe I said what I said to them. I am such a screw-up. What in the world am I going to do? How am I going to fix this? The Lord is the one who orchestrates all this, showing great mercy both to you and to them in the midst of it. If you think that you can change someone's life in such a way by your words that actually causes them to go off kilter to the will of God, you're fooling yourself. You may have anxiety and distresses in your life that may seek you to go places that you probably shouldn't go. That doesn't mean you've gone off the deep end. That just simply means that you need to find your solace and uh, uh, um, comfort in the one place you should be going to. One place you should be going to. Put your hope in God, for He knows you and will guard you and strengthen you. 1 Peter 5. Starting in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time that He may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Why should you cast it on Him? Because He cares for you. Why does He care for you? Because He's been there. He's been there. He's not detached. He knows it. He feels it. He even weeps when others around him weep. He knows. Cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, like the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Do you know why anxiety comes your way? Because he loves to munch that stuff up. If you've got a fear in your life, he's going to use it. The the devil only uses what you already have there. He doesn't conjure stuff up. So if you have a fear about losing your job, or if you have a fear of, about losing a friend or a family member, he's going to use it. He's going to use it in such a way your anxiety is going to explode at times. But how are you to overcome it? To be sober-minded. So we are to do what? Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You're not alone. The things that you are experiencing, you are not alone. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself do what? Restore you. Confirm you. Strengthen and establish you. Those sound like some pretty good things. So whenever it says, do not be anxious... That just doesn't mean, oh, anxiety, go away, please. It means you need to take that anxiety where it needs to go. To cast it upon the Lord, because He took everything for you. He condemned sin in the flesh for you. So you can cast it all upon Him because He cares for you. He's been there. So that way you may be restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established. 
Lastly, I want to uh, quote to you uh, 1 Corinthians 10.13. 10.13. Very last verse of that section. I want you to understand something about you not being alone. Listen here. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He may also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. And that does also mean in the midst of your anxiety, your distress, your sorrows. You're not going to be overtaken by it. As a matter of fact, you're not alone in it. As a matter of fact, I'm sure there many are sitting here in this very room who can completely relate with what you're going through. And you guys can build each other up in faith. But you won't be overtaken by it. Because God has provided a way out. Do you want to know what that way out is? The 12-year-old boy who stood in the temple. He is the great high priest, not like any other, who can sympathize with you. Hebrews 4. Check this out. What a great Savior we have. What a great high priest we have. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Did it say to fix yourself? Did it say, oh, Jesus did it, you can do it too. That's not what it says. What are you supposed to do in the midst of it? With confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace and help to help in time of need. Are you in need this morning? Are you in need this morning? Are you going to make another resolution that's not going to pan out? Or maybe do you need to place your hope in God a little bit? They didn't say to fix yourself. This one that came, who astonished the teachers regarding redemption, reconciliation, and deliverance, didn't just mean from hell. It means from every element of the human experience. He experienced it all and overcame it. Not that you're supposed to be one who overcomes all things now. He done it. Abide in Him. Abide in Him. Like John 14, you abide in Him and He and you, because they will come and make His home with you. We have a great sympathetic high priest who understands the affirmities that we go through, who understands the anxieties, distress, sorrows. He even understands what it means to go through school. And He weeps for those who weep. So in conclusion, there's three things I want us to take home. Three things I want us to take home. Abide in Christ as you grow in wisdom during your journey in this life, the wilderness. Christ knows the journey and guides His people with grace. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be a know-it-all. But just walk with Him. Just walk with Him. Number two, abide in Christ as those who abide in Him abide in the Father and does the will of the Father or will of God. Number three, abide in Christ as He knows the anxieties and sufferings you have and cares for you to relieve you in His mercy. 
May we abide in the one who came, who understands, who knows, who focuses and overcame for our stead. So cast everything that you have upon him, for he cares for you. He didn't go through this life just simply so that way you could feel unguilty anymore. It's that we have an advocate in all things that we can go to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you sent your Son. That he knows what it like, he knows what it's like to experience this life. That he knows the, the weeping that we have, that the tears that we have shed and the pages that we have wet with our tears, you know what that is like. You know what it means to weep. You know what it means to carry heavy burden. You know what it means to not be overcome by temptation. You know what what it means to live this life, this journey, this wilderness that we find ourselves in. Because we know that you are the one who is only able to carry us through this wilderness to our Father's house. That you went to prepare a place so that way we can have a place to go. You not only bear with us in the wilderness, but you are one carrying us into the promised land. May we come to you with all of our anxieties and sorrows and stress. May we cast upon you all the things that seek to draw us down. That we may be established and loved freely. That we may be abiding in Him. That we no longer carry the weightiness of doing it on our own. Because we have a great high priest who has endured all things. So Lord, may our hearts be turned towards you this morning. And may we know to whom we can run to. The one who knows. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.